Zounds menacing, the dead begin to speak. Heard through the galaxy, though yet unseen, comes threat of harsh revenge in voice most bleak. The sinister, dark Emperor Palpatine. Our General Organa sends a chain of spies to seek out news past every border. Whilst Rey of Jedi hopes the last, doth train for battle against the devilish First Order. Their supreme leader Kylo Ren is sour, for he is this phantom emperor would see, to conquer any threat to his vast power. Behold the end of our nonology. In time so long ago begins our play, in force-touched galaxy far, far away. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this episode where we're taking it back all the way to Shakespeare, Elizabethan, 14th century. We're there, baby. <laughs> we are, but we're <laughs> in Star Wars, too. We're in a galaxy far, far away, so it is great. We're so, so excited to welcome Ian Desher to our podcast today. Because I'm a huge fan of Shakespeare. I think it is known. Love this stuff. And I've always loved, as I you will hear in this interview, I gush about how much I love the Shakespeare adaptations. Like, it's kind of embarrassing. So I'm really, really happy that Caitlin and I were able to bring him on the show. It is honestly like a dream. <laughs> I was telling my parents about it because I was, I was like, this is... And they were like, oh my God, I remember you used to go every summer and get them. And you were so obsessed with them. We all kind of thought you were kind of weird. And yeah, that's how it goes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, it's a really fun interview and I hope you guys enjoy it. And I hope that you check out all his Shakespeare adaptations, which I think are so fun, but also the the Mary Rise of Skywalker, which I think is a fitting end to the Shakespeare Star Wars saga. Yeah, it was it was really fun to chat with him. Um, you know, Charlotte is the bigger Shakespeare fan of the two of us, I must be honest, but I love the Shakespeare adaptations of Star Wars, and I'm a, I I really like The Merry Rise of Skywalker. I, <laughs> I can't stop loving the title so much. Like, it's weird that I keep fixating on the title, but I just think it fits so well, <laughs> and it sounds... So, like it's perfect for this for this book and for this film and i just like saying it the mary rise of skywalker the mary rise of skywalker so it's it's a really good interview i hope you guys enjoy it and it's great to hear from ian and like charlotte said if you've never picked up one of these books before definitely go and give it a try they're so much fun and they're so clever too so uh this is your push to go and order one if you haven't yet Absolutely. They look really good on the shelf. I'm just saying, really good <laughs> on the shelf. <laughs> so I actually got to say, put it up on the shelf uh, in the middle of our interview, listen for it, and just know while you're listening that I had to hold in a laugh knowing that Charlotte probably should have said it, but I got to say <laughs> So without further ado, we are now presenting our interview with Ian Desher. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? So we're so thrilled to welcome Ian Desher to Sky Talkers today. Uh, Ian, I'm such a huge fan of your adaptations. I used to pre-order them every summer, and I was I always looked forward to getting them at my bookstore. And I always loved uh, pouring over all the comparisons with my favorite Shakespeare stories and how and seeing how you interpret my favorite movie. It was just always so great. So thank you and congratulations on nine incredible Shakespearean adaptations and welcome to Sky Talkers. Well, thank you so much and thank you for having me on. Yeah. 
Yes, we are super excited. Um, we are big fans of your work and completing the collection with the Merry Rise of Skywalker. Number one, I just I love the title so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are really excited to have you on the show. And kind of to start off, we really wanted to go big picture with you for our first question, which is why Shakespeare and Star Wars? Why does this combination work so well? Well, the, the why Shakespeare and Star Wars, just as a foundational question, you know, those are two things that have been dear to my heart um, since I was young. Star Wars, really, from before I have memories and Shakespeare since I was a freshman in high school. And so um, they are two things that um, that I have adored and have wanted to be, you know, a continuing part of my life. And, and I think they go together well because, you know, Shakespeare wrote the sort of popular entertainment of his day that I think is what Star Wars is for us now. I think if Shakespeare were alive now, he would be writing things like Star Wars. Um, Shakespeare wrote about, um, you know, human emotions and stories with good characters where people were having adventures and you know, learning to live with their fates and, and experiencing all kinds of new things. And that's what all good stories are. And that's certainly what Star Wars is as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's, something that I love so much about this combination of Star Wars and Shakespeare, but it's also a little bit ironic too, because, you know, now we consider Shakespeare like very high art when the irony is he wasn't that, like he was pop culture back then. And often I, I think a lot of people don't view pop culture as not necessarily as always valuable as like, quote unquote, high art. And so to kind of combine them is so interesting. But at their foundation, they're both popular culture. And so it makes perfect sense for them to go together. And I've always really appreciated that about your adaptations. Yeah, I think we definitely, you know, culturally, especially in the United States, we I think we have this very lofty view of what Shakespeare is um, that just would not have been a thing in his time. Yeah, exactly. Did you read original film scripts or did you just watch the movie a bunch? I know with this one, I feel like the turnaround was quite fast from the movie's release to this. At least that's what I think. Um, did you get to read the script and how how did you get to decide uh, what Shakespearean lines you you uh, include within the parody? So, so the process for each, I guess I would say for each trilogy has been kind of different. You know, with with the original trilogy, Obviously, I, I grew up with the movies and uh, had known them for decades before I started writing these books. And so, you know, I, the the specific process hasn't changed in that I, uh, you know, I will sit down with the movie and we'll sort of play a few seconds of dialogue and listen to what's said. And, you know, there's especially with the first six movies, I can find the script online so that I've got the script there uh, to to see if there's anything that. I didn't understand, you know, or like, like lines that I never quite heard what they were saying. Um, and, and also, of course, closed captioning helps with that a whole lot. Um, and, and so then I just w will sort of try to go a few seconds at a time and work my way through, you know, a, a few minutes of the movie every time I, I sit down to write. Um, the, with the prequels, you know, it, that was different because um, although I had seen the movies, uh, certainly multiple times, I hadn't seen them as many times as the original trilogy. And there was really just, I mean, for me, like a, a basic, a fundamental, like, do I actually get what's going on in the prequels? Uh, <laughs> all of the sort of political stuff that's going on. Am I really understanding who's on whose side? And, and I wanted to make sure I got that right. So I actually pulled together a little 
council of friends who are all Star Wars people, uh, you know, to talk talk through the prequels before I started writing them. Um, oh, that's super interesting. And then the the new movies have have been really different because you know I don't get the scripts in advance. I don't know anything about the movies until they come out, and so I my practice has been to sort of see the movie several times in the in its opening weekend, um, and usually then I'm I'm starting writing within the first week, and 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 so it's different because I don't have the same um, you know with the original trilogy we have decades of sort of fan conversation about the movies and what people think about, you know, different theories and different problems and that sort of stuff. And we don't have that with the new movies as much. Um, and so, so it really does feel like a, a different process of like trying to get to know a movie really quickly and then, um, you know, making something of it and hoping that I am sort of getting at what the, what the spirit of the movie is. Right. I can totally imagine that being a huge challenge because I think, a lot of fans, including myself, are still kind of uh, dissecting The Rise of Skywalker and every recent movie that has come out. So I can imagine that it's quite the challenge to kind of think, uh, to kind of go through the film and be like, this is what we take from it in a different way than I suppose. I think that's really interesting what you talked about with the prequels and kind of getting a council of fans together and kind of deciding really what the story was about and what it was getting at. Uh, at least that's what I interpreted from what you say, what you were saying. And um, I think that it's easier to do that with a movie that even, even the prequels, which have been kind of in the cultural subconscious for a, a longer time than <laughs> the rise of Skywalker, the sequel trilogy, which I can imagine even writing them as these movies are coming out that you're trying to get at the themes, what the overall structure is, whether it's a tragedy or comedy, all these things. Um, yeah, I can imagine the challenges that come with that. Yeah, and I, I didn't know, I, I honestly didn't even know that the like Finn Ray thing was a thing until my first book <laughs> uh, came out, and people like on Twitter were asking me about it. And, and now with this, with this latest book, you know, I, I would say the the Raylo people are. Are really happy with with this book because it it does sort of mm -hmm. put a little more emphasis on that relationship, at least in words, uh, than the movie does. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you brought that up. We are definitely those Raylo people, so sure. we <laughs> we really appreciate that. And I I loved your interpretation of including Romeo and Juliet lines. I thought it was a a perfect parallel and. I, I liked going through my copy of Romeo and Juliet and just kind of uh, comparing these lines, you know, eyes look your last, all these things. And it was, it was, I was very thankful for that. So uh, I, I think that that parallel was perfect to draw. Well, and, and it was so clear, you know, I mean, any, any time you have a scene where you've got, you know, somebody dying and somebody else sort of coming back to life at the same instant and everything <laughs> like uh, it was, it just made a whole lot of sense. Um, and, and also I, I wanted to, you know, the movie really only after, after Ben Solo sort of becomes Ben Solo again, he really only has one word in the movie and it's ouch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, I really, I, I did want to give him a little more sort of meat there because it, in a Shakespearean context, that's, that's just not something you'd ever do is, is, you know, have a character who kind of just doesn't speak for a long time. Mm -hmm. Unless it's Lavinia and Titus Andronicus, but that's, <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. 
So as you were talking about, you know, the writing process for these films, and, and you kind of touched on it a little bit about, you know, it's obviously very different writing for The Rise of Skywalker versus the original trilogy and the second trilogy and um, the prequel trilogy and, and things like that. But has your relationship to the films changed at all? Like, are there parts of, of the Star Wars films that, you know, you weren't necessarily the they weren't your favorite parts or they've stood out to you more having to go through this process of of adapting them to to Shakespeare? Yes, I would say the I mean I would say I appreciate the prequels now more than I ever did after having spent so much time with them. Um and and specifically I I mean I have a a, a new sort of sympathy for Jar Jar Binks that I definitely didn't have before. Um yes. uh you know it's it's hard it's hard to say that my relationship with the new movies has changed since they're so new, but I will say that my, like the way I watch star Wars movies now has changed um, because I now am sort of watching them with this eye of, of thinking about an adaptation. Um, and that's even true. I, I mean, even with ones that I haven't adapted uh, rogue one and solo, I mean, even those I'm, I'm sort of looking at and, and, pondering the the themes that that are there so it it has changed my experience of the movies and the original trilogy too i mean it's um you know i never as a kid who like thought harrison ford was the coolest right you know like i I never i always thought of han solo as the real hero of the first movie and he's just not you know i mean he (laughs) luke skywalker is just a hundred percent the hero of that movie which i i didn't really appreciate until i sat down and and wrote an adaptation of it is there a character that's the hardest to write that you're just like, I wish he had less lines because it's so challenging? <laughs> <laughs> well, only only because th- there are limitations that I put on myself with certain characters. So like every single line of Poe Dameron's, uh, every single line of Poe's references an Edgar Allan Poe poem or, or short story. Um, and that was okay in the force awakens where he had a limited number of lines. And, you know, by the last two, last two movies, I was kicking myself for having done that because it's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. It's a whole lot of Poe. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, he'll have like these little tiny lines too, right? Just these little sort of back and forth with Ray really fast. And like each one I'm looking for, a, a you know, an Edgar Allan Poe line to go with it. So Oh my gosh. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of wish I hadn't done that, but it's over now. I've done it. <laughs> yeah, but it's the, that's super cool. I I think you should pat yourself on the back for doing that because that's a that's really interesting that you're able to weave that in. I had a really random question that I wanted to ask you. Sure. I'm a really big fan of A Christmas Carol, and I know that you've written Shakespeare's A Christmas Carol. Yeah. And I noticed there's a line of Kylo Kylo Ren when he's doubting Han's uh, ghostly presence there. He says, thou art mayhap some undigested beef, thou art more gravy than come from the grave. Yep. Which reminded me of when Scrooge doubts the first ghost and says, you may be an undigested bed of bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. There's more gravy than, than of grave about you, whatever you are. Did you draw any other Dickens comparisons? Because I think that in that moment, I had I've been thinking a lot about the like redemption story of uh, a Christmas Carol, and I really just loved this parallel. If that was intentional, and I kind of assume it is. <laughs> well, it, it is one hundred percent intentional, and and in fact, not only do you have the reference right, but I pulled those lines directly out of my adaptation of a Christmas Carol just for fun. Like, no, you're the only person 
I know who has noticed that yes. and picked up on it. Um, and, and it is absolutely taken from that. And, and I, I just cribbed for myself really. And I did it just kind of, just kind of for fun. Right. Like, um, I, I don't think, uh, Dickens does show up a little bit in, um, I think it's in the force awakens, my version of the force awakens. Um, but it was not, it was not, I wish I could say that it was really a super intentional thought around the idea of Scrooge's redemption combined with Kylo Ren's slash Ben Solo's redemption. Um, It was really more that like, here's a person who's seeing a ghost and he doesn't quite believe it. And what is that? That makes me think of Scrooge. Right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's how it came up. Right. And I, I think, I think that maybe it was in the subconscious. I'm just going to say it is in my my (laughs) head Um, because that's my, like, Honestly, my favorite line from A Christmas Carol, I, my parents and I joke about the whole undigested beef thing. <laughs> it's so funny. So I'm really glad that it was included. That's funny. Yes. Well, 500 bonus points, Charlotte. Well, <laughs> Thank you. I feel well so smart. Yeah. She, she's really going to take those to the bank. I promise you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You're never going to hear the end of it, actually. Another thing that I wanted to ask about is just spe- sticking with the Kylo Ren theme. I think that something that fans had kind of drawn a parallel to originally in The Force Awakens, at least, was this Hamlet parallel between Kylo Ren, especially when he's speaking to the Darth Vader mask. And I wondered if you had thought anything about that parallel uh, beyond that, the visual, uh, the visualization of that scene in in the force awakens and also in your your parody of of the force awakens and whether you could draw any parallels to hamlet for kylo ren um continuing throughout the sequel trilogy yeah i mean certainly that that theme is there um i didn't draw it out specifically in that moment where he's addressing the mask mainly because in my first book um you know when when i first did william shakespeare's star wars i didn't know if uh, that was going to be maybe be the only book I ever published. Like I, I had mm-hmm. no idea what was going to happen after that. And so I wanted there to be that visual moment that we all, that we all associate with Shakespeare, which is Hamlet holding York's skull. And so I gave that to Luke Skywalker as he's taken off his stormtrooper uh, disguise. Uh, and he's sitting there holding the helmet and addressing it. And he has a, a last poor stormtrooper speech. And so I felt like I had, had used that, moment uh like i didn't feel like i could reuse that speech then for for kylo ren talking to uh the helmet of darth vader uh because i had already sort of very explicitly done it for luke um but the i mean yes for sure that the the sense of hamlet and the obligation he feels toward his father uh, is obviously there in kylo ren Mm -hmm. yeah and i think I think I'm still unpacking that parallel. I I love Hamlet. It's probably my favorite Shakespeare play, and I feel like that's really cliche to say. But <laughs> I, mean, I it's, uh, it's mine too. So it's yeah. oh good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I feel like there's there's a lot of parallels. I think there's a lot of the the visuals, but um, I think that's really interesting. Another thing that I really wanted to ask you about was the Trooper Seven and Trooper Eight discussion in mm-hmm. A Mary Rise of Skywalker. And maybe I can understand if you don't want to comment on it, but it seemed like these two stormtroopers from this is my interpretation. These two stormtroopers were talking about one of them was talking about writing uh, nine epics. And I wondered if this is you (laughs) 
talking I, I don't know this sort of self-insert situation or is it a nod to to the creators of George George Lucas and JJ Abrams and people who are creating this this story and whether what was the intention there if you'd like to speak on it I understand if you don't want to oh I'm happy to, happy to talk about it uh, that's interesting I, I actually had never thought about that the trooper who is has written these nine epics as me uh, being the the adapter of it um, I, I was definitely thinking of it as sort of the movie makers and in fact I had an original draft of that scene um, that was frankly uh, probably a little too harsh toward the rise of Skywalker <laughs> uh, I'll say that I'll say that delicately um, uh, and and Lucasfilm uh, was like no you can't you can't quite say that um, <laughs> so, uh, so I, I did, I did sort of, uh, change it a, little, a bit and, and tone it down a bit. Um, and it's not that I, I mean, it's not that I, uh, despised the rise of Skywalker by any means or anything like that. It, it's, um, uh, it, but I sort of had, had the, uh, uh, person, the stormtrooper who had written these nine epics, uh, talking about how he was sort of going to give everybody exactly what they wanted in this final, uh, epic that he was writing. Um, and, uh, I think they didn't quite like that. So anyway, uh, uh, yeah. So, I think so that's great. I yeah. would have liked to see that. Yeah, that's, me too. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I also, I also think this is great too. So <laughs> I will say that Lucasfilm, I mean, I have one of these scenes in all nine of my star Wars books, these uh, scene between two characters who that doesn't, doesn't exist in the movies at all. And every single time I am in some way poking fun at the movies and Lucasfilm has been like this is the first one they've ever said anything about. They have been totally great about letting me sort of have fun and, and mock the movies and that sort of thing. Uh, so hundred percent to their credit, like they, they get what these parodies are about and, uh, and they know how to have a good time with them. That's, that's so fun. Maybe one day in the far, far future, we'll see the light of day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But kind of uh, talking about scenes that don't exist, I, you know, writing the action into the dialogue, I imagine is very challenging. And I think it's it's so well done in this book, particularly, I think one of my favorite parts of the Mary Rise of Skywalker is the Death Star battle scene with Rey and with Kylo. How hard is it to kind of describe these very intense actions and like the force, but but making it work? for the Shakespeare adaptation. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tricky. And the the one criticism I heard after my first book came out that I really took to heart was that I had overused the chorus um, in sort of describing the action that was going on. And so I've been really aware of that and sensitive to that in the last eight books um, of, of trying not to have the chorus come in every single time some sort of action is happening. Um, but to, to try to let the characters describe what's going on a bit. And, you know, I mean, the, you know, Star Wars has all this great action in it. And some of the action is what we, you know, look forward to and think of as as our Star Wars. And so, like, I, I, it's not like I could leave it out in some way. Right. So um, so it has to be in there. Um, and but it is also tricky because fundamentally you're writing what is supposed to be a stage play um, and that exists only with dialogue and stage directions. So. Uh, so you do have to figure out a way to do it, and and I, I try my hardest to do it in a, in a way that isn't um, that isn't distracting or uh, or weird in any way. Yeah, I think with the with the Death Star scene in particular, I think 
I think that whole scene honestly really benefited from having the Ray and Kylo's dialogue in it. Just the parallel of them talking, you know, doing the aside about their different actions, but the whole speech is paralleled, but it's also talking about their their existence as the dyad, which is their the balance. So it all just worked really seamlessly and I think kind of added a whole new a whole new layer to the concept of the dyad, which is something that I wish was given more time in the film. So I think that being able to express it in this way in in the Mary Rise of Skywalker was was really, really well done and really beneficial for that part of the film, honestly. Well, yeah, and that was part of I mean part of the joy of me getting to write dialogue for Ben Solo where there wasn't any in the movie um, was being able to do something like that. And it is interesting, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to talk with, you know, the filmmakers and, and find out about like, why did they have that decision to, to have him not really speak? Um, Because I I do think there's a lot, I mean, you, you can see in the, in the movie, you have these moments like the moment moments where they've got their lightsabers and they're sort of lining up together. You get that visually um, but you don't ever really get it in the dialogue. So that's what I was trying to trying to do. Oh, I think it really worked. Um, I, I just really love this parallelism that you're able to draw between um, the lines, the, all these asides, like Caitlin mentioned, you know, the final confrontation, blow for blow, the final confrontation, come what may, all these things that, uh, I don't know, this is just almost musical. And I know that you studied music. So I, I can I, I feel it when you're writing. I think. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, I, I, I think that if nothing else, you know, having studied music helps me with iambic pentameter um, and getting the rhythm of the language down. And uh, I mean, at this point, I've I've written so much of it that it feels sort of like second nature to me. Um, but I think having that musical background really helps. Something else I wanted to ask you about was kind of honestly Chewbacca. <laughs> <laughs> because he I think his the you know the editor's translation has been one of my favorite parts of these books and I have to say that his one of his last kind of monologues about Leia you know absolutely wrecked me and this this kind of goes back to you know having you know one of the benefits of this is having more time to pause with these characters and really explore some of the things that they're going through you know Star Wars is action they are action films and so we're moving you know as a pun at light speed a lot of the time and so getting a moment in this to kind of reflect with Chewie about you know the very first moment he met Leia I mean it it kind of ripped my heart out a little bit (laughs) and I mean was there that kind of emotion when writing these last kind of monologues and soliloquies for these characters now that you've reached you know chapter nine out of nine you know with Chewbacca I didn't I didn't do anything with him in the in the my first six books, right? Uh, I and I and I wish I, I sort of wish I had. Um, and and it was because you know R two D two appears first in A New Hope, and so I had sort of done this this thing with him where he speaks and beeps and squeaks to the audio to the other characters, but then turns around and speaks in English to the audience. And I didn't want to reuse that sort of trope for Chewbacca, and so I. I ended up just giving him his growls and grunts and that was it. And, and then, so when it came time to do the sequel trilogy, I was like, I have to do, I have to do something here. Right. And, and I really want to people to experience how Chewbacca, who has, who has seen this history, like more than just about anybody has, uh, certainly anybody who is living still, um, you know, has, has seen this, this history out. Um, and, 
and how is it making him feel, right? What does it feel like for him to watch Han Solo die and then, and then, you know, and then Luke dies and then right after that, Leia dies, right? And it's all happening in a, in a fairly short amount of time. And so, yeah, I do want to, I do, it is fun to get to explore him and, uh, and really bring out that sense of how much he has lost. Um, and, and I actually think that, I mean, I love that moment in uh, the rise of Skywalker where, you know, like it's, it's just a brief moment where Chewbacca is just kind of sitting there dejected and, mm-hmm. and um, then somebody comes up to him and it's like, Hey man, we need you. We got it. And, and you can sort of see him like, be like, okay, yeah, I gotta, I gotta do this. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I, I did want to, to really try to bring that out. And, and, you know, I mean, Shakespeare is, is great for this, right? Shakespeare tell, gets you inside people's heads and tells you how people are feeling and what they're wrestling with. And, and um, I love doing that. I mean, that's my, probably my favorite part of this whole thing is getting to, um, you know, put in this, these thoughts and feelings that are not shown explicitly in the movie, or at least not stated explicitly, um, and, and be able to do that for these characters that I love so much. Yeah, I think it is completely felt. And to me, honest, to, like, to be honest, Caitlin, and that's why Caitlin and I have a podcast is because we love to overanalyze what's going on in all these characters heads. So I can truly imagine that it is such a treat to be able to to do this and then write soliloquies and beautiful prose, you know, I think it's perfect. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about using iambic pentameter and the the strictness that you've allowed and um, whether what that was like between going from Blake blank verse and uh, iambic pentameter and all these, all these things and how, how it works in the Mary rise of Skywalker. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I stick closer to, um, to the structure of iambic pentameter really even than Shakespeare did. I mean, he breaks the rules of it all the time. And, and when I was first writing, like when I was working on my first book, I thought to myself, you know, this has to be, perfect because if i if i sort of just phone it in and make it you know almost perfect but not really perfect then people are just gonna be like oh he's just being lazy and and you know he can't really do it um and so i felt like i had to actually be like stricter about the rules than shakespeare was in order to show like hey i'm really trying to honor shakespeare here by by making this meter good um and then with with the merry rise of skywalker um and i mentioned this in the in the afterward but I realized uh, having uh, sort of by chance re-listened to the audio book of my first book, I realized how much uh, in that first book, I, I rarely used weak endings, which is a, an added 11th syllable at the end of the line. So like to be or not to be, that is the question. That's a, that's a weak ending. Um, and so I, I decided in The Merry Rise of Skywalker to go back to the really strict only 10 syllables per line uh, format and, and just sort of see if I could, if I could do it and stick to it. Um, and so there, there are only like maybe 10 or a dozen, uh, week endings in the whole book. Whereas in, if you looked at Jedi the last and counted them out and please don't anybody actually do that because <laughs> that would be a waste of your time, but there, there would be way, way more. Yeah. But you've counted out a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I counted out. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yep. As I'm writing and as the, as I'm reviewing. Yeah. <laughs> So we also wanted to ask you about 
kind of visualized visualizing the stage because you you kind of mentioned you've mentioned this a couple times while we've been talking but you know how this is meant to be a stage play and so they you know they're exiting stage left exiting stage right going through the trapdoor all that good stuff so how how is that challenging like do you find yourself kind of actually visualizing a stage and all of these characters on it or are you kind of seeing them in the films and then translating it into the actual written text this is another one of those things that I didn't think about as much with my first book, but then with subsequent books I did because it was only it was only like when the first book came out that that theater companies like approached me and approached my publisher and and like wanted to do these and I thought to myself, oh, I because I, I had really been thinking of it as a book, even though it's obviously in a play format. I just was thinking of it as a book, and that's when I really thought, oh, I should I should think about this more as a a stage play, and so in again, starting with Empire Striketh Back, you know, I started using like the balcony and the trapdoor and things like that, the things that would actually be aspects of an Elizabethan stage. And now, I mean, I try as much as possible to, to uh, give some sort of realistic sense of how this could work on a stage, you know, so if um, in film, it's really easy, of course, to, to cut away from one scene to another and then jump back uh, which just doesn't really happen, especially in Shakespeare, very much. Um, and so, so I will often have people come in, you know, who are in sort of a shorter scene with fewer characters, and they'll be doing their scene on the balcony while down on the main stage, you know, there's something else going on. And then in these like climactic scenes, it's usually toward the end of the movie, right? When when there's all kinds of stuff going on and it's all happening kind of at once, I just sort of have to imagine like, well. On the left side of the stage, we're going to have the space battle. On the right side of the stage, we're going to have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ben and Ray fighting against Palpatine. And on the balcony, we're going to have a third thing going on. And and I just have to, I mean, that's where I feel like maybe this could actually work in a modern Shakespearean stage, like at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, right, where you could adjust the lighting at least and things like that. Uh, in You know, on Shakespeare's actual stage... I think it would be a stretch, but I I try as much as possible to to give it a sense that it could actually be staged. Yeah, I think even with space travel, that makes it ten times more challenging. But I think I think one of the parts that really stood out to me as as really being able to see it in my head was towards the beginning with one of the first force bond scenes between Ray and Kylo while she's training. And I think you wrote as like Kylo is up in the balcony looking down on her, and I thought that just really mirrored like where they were kind of emotionally and, and setting up that whole force bond scene really well. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and, and then the, I mean, obviously starting with uh, Jedi, the last, that, that was one I was like, how am I going to do this? Especially once they, I mean, in um, the rise of Skywalker, once they are actually sort of engaging with each other and in each other's spaces, as they have that bond with each other, mm-hmm. um, it just becomes that much more, complex so um again it's one of these things where i i try it and i hope it works and so i'm i'm glad to hear you you thought it worked uh let me tell you a part that really worked for me was the part that is quite devastating for me as a fan of ben solo in the rise of skywalker is when he is like thrown into the pit but I have to say, I found myself kind of, it's, this is so bad, but I, I found myself grinning, which is the point of, you know, a, a fun Shakespearean parody, something that I love so much. I love that it's, you know, 
exit through the trap do- door. And I feel like I can totally visualize that and it makes sense. And I'm like, that is so Shakespeare. And that's exactly what why I'm reading this. <laughs> well, that's I mean, it, it it's perfect, right? It's perfect for a, a Shakespearean. Like if somebody's going to disappear down a hole, luckily we do have that trap door right there. And, yeah, and exactly. I guess I can only assume that that they used it for a similar sort of purpose, right? Uh, and uh, and so um, yeah, it is it is it is very convenient uh, and and fun to use and sort of remind people like, hey, guess what? There's a trap door here that we can use. <laughs> There's always the trapdoor. <laughs> That's right. I have to ask a bit of a random question. Um, the illustrations in the book are are so great. And was it your choice to have Babu Frick in between every act? Because I love his Shakespeare outfit so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was that was my publisher's decision. They've uh, each time we've done one of these books, they've put uh, you know a character who is there for every act. And it's always adorable and fun. Uh, and Babu Frick just looks amazing. And and my illustrator, Nicholas Delord, he's done this for nine movies, I'm sorry, nine books now. Um, and his his covers are just astounding and so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, so beautiful. And and the illustrations on the inside often I think really help you imagine uh, how the mashup actually works and how it could be staged, you know, often in space battles he'll have like like basically spaceships as puppets and things like that, that he's illustrating. And um, so I'm, I'm so grateful that I'm so grateful, first of all, to have had a consistent illustrator through the whole thing and to have it be somebody as talented as Nicholas um, who, who just did. I mean, they're just amazing. And when, and when I saw the cover for this one, you know, uh, I was just, it was, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. I like every there. I keep having new favorite covers of mine. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. I would buy this cover as a, as a print. I love it so much. And I know that on Twitter, I know Caitlin's going to mention this on Twitter. It felt like when this was released, it felt like everyone was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And it really is. It's, it's gorgeous artwork. And I love seeing Chewbacca also inside with you know, a, a barred cap on, just so perfect. Yeah. So cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like every time any one of these covers were released, I feel like it kind of took over the Star Wars Twitter community <laughs> for the entire day and everyone was <laughs> talking about it and, oh, did you see this in the middle and everything? It was, they're, they're really great. And we just had to take a moment to kind of shout out the illustrations because like you said, they really do add so much and they're so clever too, like you said, with the puppets and, and honestly the costuming. And one thing I think is really interesting and not to, um, stay on the illustrations for too long, but you know, the, how the costumes, some of them, like, yes, they're imagined for Elizabethan times and things like that, but like Ray's still works really well. Like, I feel like there weren't that many changes to her costume, but then seeing, you know, like Chewbacca with his hat and the droids with their hat and and all of this is just, it's so creative and clever and cute, but then it also still flows so well with Star Wars. Yeah, to- totally. And, and, you know, there was discussion for a long time about whether it would work to have uh, like Luke or Obi-Wan um, or Qui-Gon or Rey on the cover because like, Jedi outfits don't often lend themselves to like going Shakespearean in a way that some other things do. Um, but we've done it now with, with Luke on the cover of Jedi the last and, and Ray on the cover of, uh, of the Mary Rise of Skywalker. And 
Um, and they're two of my two two of my favorites. I mean, uh, so yeah. It, again, that's uh, like thank goodness that Quirk Books is is so smart that they are like we know that we are going to have this cover that draws people right in um and is just so visually compelling and then that they found an illustrator who is so talented that uh he has the chops to do it i i mean again that, that's a point where like i feel so lucky because i basically have very little to do with any of that uh and so uh i'm just very fortunate yes it, it really does complete the package um for just like a, a beautiful yeah. book to have in your collection and to look yeah. at honestly just look at the cover all day <laughs> yeah so, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about coming to the end of this whole, you know, nine part saga and, and collection of books. Is there a section from all of them that kind of sticks out as as your favorite or the most challenging, the most rewarding? Or is it The Merry Rise of Skywalker, like finally, you know, putting the last book on the shelf? You, you know, the the things that stick out for me are the are the moments where I challenged myself to do something that nobody told me I had to do, but things that I thought would be sort of, uh, fun, cool things to try. Um, and, and having success with those, um, like those are the things that stick out in my mind more than like specific books that were, that were tricky to write. Um, so it's, it's things like in, in the Mary Rise of Skywalker, I have this, uh, I give a speech to the, uh, character that John Williams plays in his cameo. Um, and I sort of embed sheet music for the, uh, Star Wars theme into his speech, um, and and like that was the kind of thing where I was like, I have I don't know if I can't I don't even know if I'm able to do this. Um, if it's going to work out, I'm going to try. I'm going to give it my best shot, and we'll see what happens. And and when something like that works out, and you're like, yeah, okay, I did it, and I think it works. Um, that's it's super rewarding. Um, and and that's also just the kind of I mean, like, um, for better or worse, like. Uh, I really like writers who uh, can do that sort of clever kind of kind of thing, and so um, I like being able to add a little bit of of my own uh, stuff to that. It really takes it to the next level. I mean, Charlotte read the book before I did, and I remember she got to that part and she sent it to me and like the the sheet music that you embedded, and she was like, "Oh my god." This is amazing. <laughs> it's the coolest thing ever. It really is. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I mean, and I love giving myself that kind of a challenge. I, I do. Um, I'm just a huge nerd about that kind of thing um, and and love to do it. Um, so, yeah. Yep. I've, I don't have anything more to say about that, except I'm a big old nerd. <laughs> so are we. Yeah. So we relate. <laughs> I think that uh, I... I, I want to go back to something you said earlier when we were talking about kind of when you were writing the prequels versions of these books. I kind of I kind of just want to pick, pick your brain a little bit about this, about how you had a, a group of friends where you uh, went through the movies and made sure that you were kind of picking up on the right themes and everything. And were there anything, any, did anything surprise you about revisiting the prequels in this way? And and especially like as a comparison to Shakespeare, did the theme, like the tragedy of it all really stick out? I mean, for sure. Yes. And I mean, I Re revenge of the Sith is easily my favorite of the, of the prequels. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that the, the tragic fall of Anakin is, is done pretty well. Um, um, and, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, it is a classical sort of 
tragic fall. Um, so I loved getting into that. Um, I'm trying to think about things that that surprised me. I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's been a while, so I didn't. I, I, I'm sorry to make you jog your memory on that, but I always like to hear about when people kind of revisit the prequels and this sort of newfound appreciation for it that perhaps they didn't have in the movie theater, which I totally understand. I mean, it's interesting to to look at the prequels and and realize that as much as like sometimes it can feel like uh, the force awakens and the rise of Skywalker were maybe a little bit too much treading over and repeating things that we had, had seen before. And, and I would say that, you know, a good deal of the backlash against the last Jedi, which, which is for my money is probably the best of the sequel trilogy. Um, but we agree. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of the backlash around that was like that Ryan Johnson was really trying to do something new and it was not sort of what we all kind of expected and I think when you look at the prequels, you realize George Lucas was really trying to do something different. He was he was filling out the Star Wars world in a way we hadn't seen before, and yeah. and you know giving it new depth with these. You know, I mean, the, the now maybe the problem is that some of the new depth he was giving it was this like weird, complicated political situation, you know, with a trade federation and things. Like maybe he <laughs> kind of didn't quite have the right sense for what that new thing should be, but he was really doing something different with star Wars and, and taking a, um, you know, a chance in doing it. Um, so I, I guess, I guess that's something I, I came to in revisiting them. Yeah. I think there's something like the discussion is always really interesting comparing, you know, the original six saga versus the sequel trilogy. And, even though they all kind of come from the same vision of George Lucas, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, they are so, so different. But then having the sequel trilogy, which is two different directors and two, you know, I think some people could argue two very different visions. It it just, for you adapting all of them and especially adapting the sequel trilogy as it's going, it's something that I find myself thinking a lot about because, you know, with the, with, with the original six, like that story was already done when you approached it, whereas this one was still ongoing. And I just, I really applaud <laughs> how great your work is because I feel like that would be such a challenge, especially if you're living like online and, and seeing all these different theories and discourse that that's very active around these films and, and what was or wasn't going to happen with them. Well, and and one thing that happened actually when when we when we first started looking at the prequels, my editor and I, um, there was some like like people were asking me like, oh, are you going to fix the prequels? Like, are you going to like like change things and and help fix them? And my editor and I sort of had that conversation, and he, uh, he I think, really wisely was basically like that's not our job here. That's the, like people have come to your books and they, and they have come like with the first three. Now what they're expecting is to see the movie that exists adapted into a Shakespearean play, not, not something completely new. Um, and, and I think like he, he sort of set that tone for the prequels. And I actually think that has been freeing with the sequel trilogy now, because now, especially since I have to get to know them so quickly, right now it's like, well, uh, like kind of, kind of, it doesn't matter if I would have done it differently or like what I, what I think of the movie. Like that's actually sort of secondary to like the fact that this is what the movie is. And, um, and so now let's figure out how to, how to make it the best adaptation you can. Totally. 
Yeah, I think that's so interesting that what you said there about it doesn't actually really matter what I think of any of them, like how I would rank them or what's my favorite. Like this is what's presented to me on the screen. And this is how I'm going to move forward with that, which, you know, as as people who podcast and like analyze these things so much and, and are always throwing in our opinion, even when maybe we shouldn't, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think that's such an interesting approach that. I've honestly, sometimes I, I don't think I've ever really experienced with Star Wars. Yeah, it is. It is very different, right? You have to sort of set aside your fan opinions uh, and and just sort of say like, okay, this is this is the movie. And I mean, it would be doing my books a real disservice if I was like, well, I don't like this movie as much. So, uh, you know, like <laughs> I'm going to do a worse job writing this book. <laughs> that, that would just be shooting myself in the in the foot. So. And and right. Lucasfilm really has they they have let me do, uh, they have let me do some really crazy things, right? They they let me take Jar Jar Binks's character and make him something com- that he's completely not in the movie. Um, and the fact that they let me do that, I mean, that's that's huge. It's yeah. huge. Yeah, I, I, it's awesome, and I think it, it really. Sp- I keep saying this, but I just I love these books so much. It was such a joy, especially. I don't want to make this about me, but I was an English major in college and I got these in the summer and it was always like, I don't know, I felt like this is a perfect amalgamation of my two favorite things, especially just coming off of a couple semesters of Shakespeare in in college and everything. It, it really made me excited, not only about school, but really about Star Wars again, especially the the prequels. And we weren't really involved in the Star Wars fandom that much in, in as much as we are right now with the podcast and everything. So it really just kept me sustained. And I just I love them. And I recommend them to everyone because they are so fun. They're just so fun. And no, I do you. think that they bring a different eye to a scene. Um, and I know they're not, you know, everyone talks about canon and everything. But I, I think that there's such merit in understanding a different different type of vision for how the scene could be perceived um, and how it could be written. And uh, I don't know, I, I even just through this whole, this voice, this lens of Shakespeare and you, I think it is very valuable to understand the tragedy of it all, the moments of joy, the the fun that comes with a Shakespeare adaptation. So again, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and and believe me when I say it has it has been a joy and um, something that you know if you had told me eight and a half years ago that this was going to be happening and that that you know that eight and a half years from that moment I would have fourteen books out and you know like I would not have believed you. So <laughs> um, I really feel I just feel so fortunate um, and so so lucky that this is all uh, has all happened. So who do we talk to about getting the solo in Rogue One once? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we talked to Lucasfilm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know. Okay, we'll do that. And, you know, there hasn't there hasn't actually been a there hasn't been a conversation about that since I mean, since probably whenever uh Rogue One was first announced. So that's been probably at least five years now. Um and you know, I mean there was a discussion at that point, right, with my editor talking to his contact at Lucasfilm saying like, well, would you want Ian to do the spinoff movies and, uh, or the standalone movies and, and, and them saying no for right now, let's just do the, the main episodes. I don't know what they would say. You know, if, if I went to them now and said, Hey, uh, how about Rogue One? Um, and, and Rogue One is, 
I mean, it's way up high there for me among Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. I really yeah. like Rogue One. And so I would love to, to write it. Um, and Solo, I'd be happy to write, but it's, it's not a tie for me. But, but uh, you know, Rogue One would be thrilling. So so who knows? I don't know that it's... I, I think a few people, because however I said it when I... Around the time that The Merry Rise of Skywalker came out, I said something like, this is my final Star Wars book or something like that. And, uh, and people... Uh, we're like final. Wait, what does final mean? Uh, <laughs> we have more. No, I, no, I, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I may have misspoken. It is. It is the last one of the Skywalker saga. In the you know. Uh, so yeah, but um, anyway. Uh, so we'll see. I I don't know what will happen uh, with that. Yeah, I I feel like Rogue One actually fits perfectly with the Shakespearean play just because of its, you know, pure tragedy with it. I feel like there's a lot to explore there with so many characters too. Now that we're kind of talking about it, I would also love to see the Siege of Mandalore from the last season of Clone Wars. I don't know if you watch Clone Wars, but the last four episodes (laughs) of season seven, I would love to see your interpretation of that. That would be amazing. So I'm just going to put that out into the universe (laughs) too. (laughs) This is this is where I confess that I have not yet watched Clone Wars. No, it's uh, okay. It's yeah. there for you on Disney Plus. <laughs> yes. And if you ever get around to to the last four episodes of season seven, I please consider writing <laughs> in, in your adaptation because I think that would be amazing. It's it it would be like right up there with Rogue One as far as like the tragic element I think to it. And it really it I mean obviously Rogue One is beautifully done, but the Siege of Mandalore uh, arc is also really beautifully done. So I'll just like I said just just putting it out there. <laughs> so for our last question, we like to ask every single guest that we have on Sky Talkers this question, and it's our we call it our Star Wars dinner question. So. Ian, what five people, um, alive or not, fictional or non, um, would you like to bring to a dinner? Like the object is good conversation. It's Star Wars people. I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I feel like I have two completely different answers, whether we're talking about real people or fictional people. But I think <laughs> I I'm gonna. I'll have to go with with my real people answer, and so. Like Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford pretty much have to be there. Daisy Ridley has to be there. Um, I think John Boyega has to be there. Uh, he is a fascinating guy. Um, mm-hmm. And and I am more fascinated with him daily now that the st- series is over, uh, actually. Um and so if I've got those four and I need a fifth, uh, I mean, it's hard not to say Carrie Fisher, uh, right? And this feels such a, like, such a pat answer. I should have better than, like, the three main stars of the original trilogy and two of the stars of the new one. But I don't know that I have a better answer than that for real people. For fate, for Star Wars characters, it's going to be, like, Hammerhead and <laughs> Bosk and, uh, you know, like... Uh, still we'd have to have Han Solo there, but then, then we'd also have like, um, oh, maybe the Mandalorian, uh, maybe, maybe he'd be there. Like, I don't know. It, it would be a, a much, uh, different sort of crowd than I think maybe Salacious B. Crumb would, would get a seat at the table. Wow. Yeah. He's 
Slacious has never been to any of our guests' Star Wars dinner, so I think you're the first one to invite. <laughs> I, I really like your actor dinner. Honestly, Charlotte and I's dinners are usually director j- dinners. Um, that's usually We usually have a whole table full of directors, so I, I appreciate your table all full of actors, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the directors would also be fun, right? It's yeah. hard to think of five Star Wars people I wouldn't want to have dinner with. Yeah. <laughs> that's what makes the question so challenging. That's true. That is, that is true. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Ian, could you tell all of our listeners where to find you and where to find the book and what you're working on lately? Sure. So you can um, find me at iandesher.com. Desher is D-O-E-S-C-H-E-R. And I'm also on Twitter that way. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm around. Um, And uh, the book is also around. You can find it uh, hopefully at your local bookseller or um, on places like Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. Um, uh, I am currently working on a couple things that I can't really talk about yet. Uh, one is a uh, Shakespearean adaptation, um, non-Star Wars. And one is uh, another thing that I just can't even talk about, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Very exciting. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It's been a joy to talk with you. And I hope to see you around the Star Wars universe more in the future. But until then, I can't wait to continue to read your Shakespearean adaptation. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a great night. Thank you so much, both of you. Okay, well, that was our interview with Ian Desher. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We had a really great time talking to him. I honestly think my favorite part was Charlotte and her Christmas Carol. Uh, shout out her Easter egg that she found. I have been around with Charlotte long enough to hear her talk about this before, way back when. So I was really glad that she got to talk to Ian about that because she's been talking to me about it a lot and I don't appreciate it nearly as much as Ian does. (laughs) But that is going to wrap up our show. Like I said, I hope you guys enjoy it, enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more from us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handle Mine is at Caitlin Flusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. You can also find us online at skytalkers.com or our email skytalkerspodcast at gmail.com on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, please take a second to go over and do that if you haven't before. It really helps other people find our show. And if you're looking for other ways to support us, you can also head on over to our Patreon. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. Jonathan, Bradley, Martin, Beer Fett, Brandon, Talia, Anton, Daniela, Jordan, Heidi, and I Rebel. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.